During the cold, short days of January 1944, lights shone brightly far into the night at the two major centers of decision-making in the American capital. In the warm, homey atmosphere of the private rooms of the White House, Franklin Roosevelt alternated between showing off his world-class stamp collection, mixing his favorite cocktails, and discussing military strategy with senior civilians and officers in the now burgeoning American military establishment. With the only exception being George C. Marshall, the president engaged in a first-name give-and-take with the secretaries of war and navy and the top tier of generals and admirals who were tasked with implementing the Allies' unconditional surrender directive against Nazi Germany and the Japanese Empire. In a time of numerous new studies on Abraham Lincoln and the Union prosecution of the Civil War, Roosevelt may have compared his role as commander-in-chief in a global conflict with his predecessor's attempts to restore a fractured nation in an equally bloody and massive conflict eight decades earlier. In January of 1864, the Union Army of roughly one million men was largely resting and refitting after an 1863 campaign season that, while beginning disastrously, had finished with the capture of the entire Confederate Army at the vital port city of Vicksburg. It had defeated Robert E. Lee's most ambitious foray into the north at Gettysburg and seriously crippled a second rebel army in the hills around Chattanooga. Lincoln was just about to name the hero of Vicksburg and Chattanooga, Ulysses S. Grant, as his commanding general, and, whereas the rebels still held substantial portions of their seceded confederation, there was something between hope and expectation among citizens of the North that the coming year, 1864, would turn the course of the Civil War irrevocably against the rebellion. Now, in early 1944, Franklin Roosevelt was sitting in the same office as Lincoln had sat planning strategy of war that was global instead of national. With both mighty allies and fanatic enemies, capable of flinging into battle forces that were many times the size of those that fought the war between the states. Like Lincoln, who had entered the Civil War with an essentially constabulary force army of only 16,000 men, the current commander-in-chief had received news of the outbreak of World War II in charge of an army smaller than that of Portugal with equipment shortages that forced war game participants to use broomsticks in place of rifles, stovepipes to substitute for mortars, and bags of flour standing in for bombs and mock air attacks. However, now the nation that had entered the war with only a few dozen modern bombers and essentially no first-line tanks had become the arsenal of democracy, which meant that American aircraft factories could replace in a few hours the equivalent of all the planes lost at Pearl Harbor. They were also forced to find increasingly creative names of ships, as most traditional designations had already been used. Ironically, the president who sat in the Oval Office in January 1944 had approximately 16 months left in his life, the same destiny that faced Lincoln at the same point in 1864. While Abraham Lincoln had to develop a strategy with his most trusted generals to recapture all or part of 11 seceded states, Franklin Roosevelt 
had to supervise construction of a plan to first eject the Axis powers from the huge segment of the planet that they had annexed and looted during the past four years, and then, most likely, smash into their homelands, which were defended possibly to the last person in an orgy of almost theatrical self-destruction. Thus, Roosevelt would have to call upon his generals and admirals, and in this modern war, his scientists and engineers as well, to force an unconditional surrender and occupation on two nations that had enjoyed ample opportunity to turn large segments of their population, from children to grandparents, into excellent candidates for suicide warriors.